You'll turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Those songs were well chosen for our passage and for Sunday school. Fit right in, Brian. Thank you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 23 and 24. First Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. So we've seen in the previous verses, verses 12 through 22, Paul has been giving them instruction on what their duty is what they should do. And so now he comes in verse 23 to what God will do. And it seems somewhat contradictory. Here we have all the things that we are to do. Then it says that he is the one who ultimately sanctify us. We've seen even all the way, you could say uh, for a lot of the book, all the way to the beginning chapter, but especially in chapter 4 and 5, we've seen a lot of what Paul is telling them is their duty, is what they should do. And we'll talk more about this. And in, in, in especially in chapter 4, we get the impression in verses 3 through 6 that we are the ones who must sanctify ourselves. He says in verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So you can get the impression that my sanctification is based on my abstinence from sexual immorality. And then as it goes on in verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. So we can get the impression that sanctification rests on my abstinence and my possession of myself, that I'm not in lustful passion, that I don't transgress and defraud my brother. And so when we come to this verse in verse 23 of chapter 5, it can seem contradictory. As we come to these verses, and we'll, we'll, we'll seek to answer that question in a moment, how, how, does the, how do those two seemingly contradictory things fit together? But as we examine these verses, I, I kind of feel like I'm, a, I'm trying to describe a breathtaking sunset to a blind person. Because as we look at these verses, verses 23 and 24, we have wonderful comfort, peace, and assurance. And if we meditate on it, we think about it, especially in light of our sin, our, re- our, our dreadful sin, our wretchedness, our unworthiness, and we contemplate the wonderful truths taught in this passage, it, it, it should be astonishing. If someone were to ask you why you love God, here's a couple of verses you can point to. This shows in stark relief, the, the, the wonderful grace and patience and loving kindness of our God. You may notice in the Old Testament over and over again, when people were led to praise God, often they would say, his loving kindness endures forever. Loving kindness was often what they went to. When I'm going to praise God, I'm going to go right to loving kindness. As we've seen in Hebrew, that's has said which is like a covenant faithfulness or a loyal faithfulness or like a holding faithfulness. 
which runs clearly in the face of what we see, what we see in our culture, in our day and age, that love is only insofar as I'm comfortable and I'm uh, fulfilled and I'm satisfied. And if the day ever comes when I'm not fulfilled and not comfortable and not satisfied, bye-bye. Because, I don't, no, love has to fulfill me and complete me and all these things. And yet God loves us without our giving anything in return. His love isn't earned by us at all. His love is gratuitous. It's, it's a gracious love and has said it is a covenant faithful love. And if we want to see a beautiful picture of that, we look at these verses. God's holding love. So we should resist the temptation to see these kinds of glories as described in these two verses, as routine, as mundane, as assumed. Actually, these are wonders beyond compare. So I feel inadequate to the task before me, but let's dive in and trust that the Spirit will reveal and press home the glorious truth that we see here to your heart and you are warmed in affection for your Savior and the love of your God for you. First notice in verse 23 that it is Paul's prayer or wish that God, the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. This is like a, a, a prayer or a blessing or a hope for them that God will do this. And so he has just given them instruction on what their duty is, as I mentioned. And now he expresses to them his expectation and prayer for God to work holiness in them. As I mentioned, we'll speak more about that in a moment, how that fits together. But for now, notice that Paul has a purpose in speaking to them his prayer to God. You could say, well, Paul, why are you telling them what your prayer is to God? Why don't you just say, God, sanctify them? Why is he telling them? Why is he saying, may God do this in you? I think we see it in the next verse. He's reminding them of God's faithfulness to do what he has promised. This is something that we see over and over and over again in Paul. He'll say, here are these duties, here are these things, here are these commands, here are these things I expect of you, here's here's what God has called you to do, do this, do this, do this. But he always roots it in theology, in the gospel, because of who you are, because of what God has done for you in Christ, because you are a new man, you're a new creature, do this. Now here's the end that you can expect. He doesn't just give you a list of do's and don'ts. He says, because you are this and because you will be this, in between, do this. I think Paul's doing the same thing here. I've given you all these things that are expected of you. Now let me put before you the certain promise of God that he will do it. Instead of just talking to God, he puts before them his prayer that he knows will be answered for their encouragement and comfort. So they have fuel for the fire. If you remember a few sermons ago, they have fuel for the fire. This is what God is doing. He is faithful. He will do it. He will sanctify me entirely. So I'm motivated to examine everything carefully. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, abstain from sexual immorality. I'm doing these things in the hope and the promise of this that Paul has just mentioned. 
Next, Paul refers to God as the God of peace. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Why does Paul do this? Why does he refer to God as the God of peace? And why does he do it, especially in this context of sanctification? Well, I think at looking at Paul's letters, we can get some clues as to what he's meaning here. 2 Thessalonians 3.16 is the first one. Paul says, just a few pages over, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. So peace in every circumstance from the Lord of peace, including sanctification. Meaning you will you'll be granted peace in sanctification. And notice the Lord be with you all. The Lord of peace will be with you, giving you peace. Keep that in mind as we look at these other passages. Philippians 4.9. These things are the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So you notice, too, a couple of things here. One, Paul says, the things that I've taught you, the things that I've just told you about your duty and about obedience and the things that you've seen me do, and you're following me, and practice these things, and he connects that to the God of peace will be with you. Well, as we've seen in Thessalonians, Paul has just given them a list of things to do, the things to to practice, the things to follow him in, and the God of peace will be with you. And then, finally, 2 Corinthians 13.11. Listen to the passive verbs. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Sounds similar to the Thessalonians, doesn't it? Rejoice. Be made complete. But notice these passive verbs. He has first an active one, rejoice, and then he switches to passive. In other words, these are the things that will be done to you. You will be made complete. You will be comforted. You will be like-minded. And you will live in peace. So it seems that God's peace comes through being with the God of peace. He says, do these things and the God of love and peace will be with you. And as we saw in Philippians 4, the God of peace will be with you. So it seems that God's peace comes through being with the God of peace and being with him comes in sanctification. So I think putting it all together is if you desire peace, be sanctified, be sanctified. Now, this does not mean that your being with him is your is your ultimate salvation from hell, from 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 death and hell. No, that that is in Jesus Christ. But what he means, I think, is as you grow in holiness, as you grow in Christ-likeness, you're more and more conformed to the image of the Son, and you're more and more weaned from the things of this world, from sin and and the corruptions of this world, more and more you'll have the peace of God. And so sanctification is a peacemaking process in your soul. As you are conformed more, as your intimacy with the God of peace grows, guess what? Your peace in your soul grows. If you desire peace, in other words, be sanctified. But there's one more verse I want to throw in there to make sure that we have a proper biblical view of peace. 
and not a worldly view of peace. You may know this verse, Romans 16, 20. Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You ever thought, that's, a, that's an interesting contradiction. How does anyone of, of peace crush anything? You ever thought about that? Oftentimes the world will word peace, that, 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 that peace to the world is kind of a passive, uh, uh, non-offensive, quiet, doesn't look anyone in the eye, non-confrontational peace. You ever notice that? That peace is just, shh, keep your mouth shut and kind of don't look at people and just be not unassuming. That's not biblical peace. The God of peace will do some crushing. The God of peace will do some crushing. He will crush Satan under your feet, under your feet. Godly peace is aggressive. It's violent against evil, against sin. So do not fall into this worldly view of peace that you're just okay with everyone. Oh, you're a nurse that takes care of people? Oh, you're a serial killer? Well, I just, everyone, I just love everyone. Oh, you violently abuse people? Oh, you care for people? I just, I just, everyone's, I love everyone. It's all the same. That is unbiblical. We are called again and again to make distinctions. Evil, good. If you love good, if you love the definition of good, which is God, the nature of God, then you must hate evil. This runs in the face of the world, doesn't it? If you love, if you actually love and you're a man of peace, you don't hate anybody. That's false. If you loved your children and you, want, you really loved them, you want to protect them, you want to care for them, you want them to be healthy and happy, then you look at uh, threats to that. You look at threats to the safety of your children, to the well-being of your children. You look at threats to them through their, the, the, against their life, the, the, the threatening with death. You, you, look at, you look at these threats and you, say, you don't say, well, to each his own. They do what they want to do. No, you say, I hate you. You are devoting yourself to the destruction of those I love. Therefore, you are my enemy. Now, we have to be careful that we don't say, well, then that makes everyone in the world my enemy. Yeah, well, we, have, we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the principalities and powers. And yet sometimes these principalities and powers and these, these evil ways of thinking take over people and you say, you are my enemy, but I will fight you in such a way that you are redeemed from that to the truth, to the true love of God, to true peace, to true righteousness. So it's a tricky thing. But don't fall into this worldly view that, that, that peace means having no enemies. Oh no, we have enemies. We have the same enemy that God does. He will crush Satan under your feet. So you march with God in the army of God to crush Satan under your feet and the works of Satan. Let me give you an example. Remember when the Israelites came to the promised land, finally with Joshua, and they were able to go in after wandering? God had promised them the promised land, and yet did they just stroll in with their hands in their pockets? Nice. You know, build over there. No, they went in with their swords out, didn't they? They had people to fight. They had people to 
to destroy, to wipe off the face of the earth so that they can possess the land. And so scholars through the, through the through church history have kind of talked about this, this the, the subduing of the promised land as kind of a picture of sanctification. That God has promised them the land, and, but they have to go in and take possession. But that God empowers them over and over. God's like, I'm going to give it to you. Don't trust in the Syrians. Don't trust in the Egyptians. I'm going to do it for you. Why do you keep looking to them? Oh, people are threatening to take the land? What do they compare to my promise that it's yours? Trust me. I will empower your armies. I will protect you. I will give it to you, ultimately, finally, completely. And so if we are going to be a people of peace in the godly way, in the biblical way, then we must be people of war. We must fight sin. We must take our swords into battle and fight. How was peace brought to them in the promised land? We come to the end of David's reign. We come to Solomon's reign. How was that brought? Through subduing the people there. It came through war. Peace came through war. How will we find, in other words, how will we find peace with the God of peace through war against our sin? So putting it all together, what we talked about before, uh, about if you desire peace, you'll be sanctified. Putting it all together, if you desire peace, make war against all enemies of peace. All enemies of God, meaning sin and evil. And so our, our, our sanctification is, 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 is a call to arms. I think I mentioned this before, but I think it needs to be said again and again, because when I, when I entered my 20s, and I became an adult, and I started trying to understand what the Christian life as an adult was, and I found myself sinning in adult ways, while still having a childish faith, and I have no idea what to do with that. I would resolve not to sin, I would resolve to trust in God about what I, what I was supposed to do with my life, what, I, what kind of career I was supposed to have, who I was supposed to marry. I would say, yes, I am God's man. And I felt like I would step outside my door and just get destroyed. Like the devil had my front door zeroed in with mortar fire. And I step out and just... So then I would come to church and I'd say, I'm getting whooped out there. I stumble in bleeding and broken and I say, help. Somebody help me. But church wasn't a place for that, in my experience. Church was a place to politely discuss the Dallas Cowboys and the weather. And maybe some sort of patriotic service or something, or in politics. But when you started saying, I'm wrestling with scripture, I don't know what it means. I'm trying to understand how to apply this. I'm wrestling with this sin. They got super uncomfortable. Oh, this is weird. <clears throat> so then I thought, am I wrong? Is this, I must be the one wrong because everyone I go to is just like, don't talk to me about that, Josh. It's weird. It's weird. It's uncomfortable. Well, the Bible says to confess my sins to each other. Can I confess my sins to you? No, that's weird. That's weird. So I had nowhere to turn. It felt like. 
Finally, I started reading the Bible systematically, and I read the whole thing through for the first time, and I realized the problem is not with Christianity. The problem is with the, the modern church. Church is most, supposed to be a hospital and a boot camp, a training ground, and a place where you can get your wounds dressed, where you can get your wounds dressed, where you can find support and fellowship and encouragement, where they can put a sword back in your hand, they can put your armor back on you, they're wearing their armor, and they say, next time you go out there, brother, I'm with you. You know how powerful that is? When I started seeing it, that, was the, that, that is, the, that, that is the, the, the design of the church. That is what God has, has designed the church to be. And I went looking for that and expecting that. And I finally found that. My relationship, my growth, my spiritual growth went through the roof. Because I was no longer alone, alone, staggering through no man's land between the trenches. I had help. And I finally understood that my relationship with God, my growth spiritually, meant war against sin. And as long as we talk about Christianity and as the faith as just this kind of polite parlor room conversation, we're missing it. Especially as our world seems to be driving off a cliff... Things are happening in this world that the, 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 the transgender and, the, and, the, and all these things that are happening that, that, that seem that they're aiming at kids. And you read about it in the news and you're like, I, can't even, I don't even understand what I'm reading. I can't even believe it's gotten to this point. And you say, what do we do as Christians? What do we do? And you come to church and you hear nothing about it. Especially as young people. And where are they hearing about it? They're hearing about it at school. They're hearing about it on the internet. And so if we're not discipling them, if we're not pointing them to the truth, if we're not saying the Christian life is a war, brother, suit up. It's not a war against flesh and blood. It's not a war against this party or that party. It's a war against sin in your heart. It's a war against sin in the heart of your brother that you help him fight. It's a war to be, to be conformed and it's by the power of God to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ where we stand blameless and holy. We were designed to fight that battle, to, to go on that mission. It's no wonder, as, as commentators, as, as sociologists point out, that the modern evangelical church, at least in the United States, has not appealed to men for decades. Why? Because it's a church just to kind of pat each other on the back and say, mm, bless you, brother, and then move on. Men understand, there is a battle to be fought. There's a war to be won, and it's already been shown that we will win it. And yet I come to church and I, hear, I don't hear anything about it. As men, we are to stand and fight for our families, stand and fight for our communities, stand and fight for truth, to stand up and get our head knocked off, go to church and get it put back on again. The God of peace is a God that makes war against evil. We must join him in that. Next, Paul expresses his prayer, his blessing that God sanctify them entirely. What does it mean to be sanctified? Well, we saw what it means to be sanctified in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, where it says, for this is in verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So you look at all what he says there, and you see that sanctification is pleasing God, verse 1. Sexual purity, verse 3. Honor, verse 3. Not lustful and not in lustful passion, verse 5. Not in transgressing or defrauding your brother, verse 6. And in purity, verse 7. 
So you put all that together and you see that sanctification, you see other places in Scripture, that sanctification is to be righteous and holy, set apart from this corrupt world, to be, as, to be holy and righteous like God. We see in verse 13 of chapter 3, Paul says that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father, the coming of our Lord Jesus. So this sanctification is to be without blame in holiness. Because we see this same wording here in verse 23. Preserve complete, sanctify you entirely, preserve complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus. So in holiness. To be sanctified is to be holy. And so as I mentioned, we see in chapter 4 here, it seems that it is our duty. But then we see in chapter 5 here that it is God's who sanctifies entirely. So God is the one who sanctifies? Yes and amen. God is the one who sanctifies. John 17, 17, Jesus is praying to his Father, and he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Then in Ephesians 5, we see that classic text of the husband loving the wife. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. There's those words again. So Christ sanctifies her. Notice, by the way, you can say, Josh, you're talking about war, but look at this gentle passage here. The husband is gently cleansing his wife with the word. I don't see violence. I don't see war, Josh. I see peace. I see this quiet gentleness. What are you talking about, war? Well, look in the previous verse, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and died for her. Gave himself up for her. There's your violence. There's your war. He loved his wife so much that he died for her. He, he, he went to death for her and that he washes, he sanctifies her that comes from the cross as well. But as I mentioned before, how are we to understand that God does it and yet we are given commands to obey as if we have to do it? Like we saw in chapter 4. Paul says, Excel still more. Abstain from sexual immorality. Possess your own vessel in honor. Love the brethren. Lead a quiet life. Behave properly toward outsiders. We, and he goes on and on all the way into chapter 5. Be alert. Be, be sober. Rejoice. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks. Do not quench the spirit. Examine everything. Hold fast. Abstain. Again and again. Paul's giving us commands. How are we to understand it? If God does it, what are we doing? The answer God's sanctifying of you includes your obedience to his commands. God's sanctifying of you includes your obedience to his commands. So often in theology, we err by, by focus, we grab one thing and we hold on to it and we ignore all the rest. It's like, oh, it's, it's God that sanctifies us, so I don't need to pay attention to any of these commands because it's all God's doing. Well, the first clue that that's wrong is why did Paul put all those in there? Or you switch the other side and say, I have to just keep these commands and be perfect at it because I have to sanctify myself. Well, it says here in verse 23 and 24 that it is God that does it. So we have to hold them both. And if God does it, and we see it's of grace, and we see in verse 24 that it's, it's in, in, in God's faithfulness and calling, 
that our obedience to his commands must be given us in Christ, which we'll see in 1 Corinthians 1, that is true. God sanctifying us entirely includes our obedience to his commands. But this is something we see in other places in Scripture. Philippians, the classic case, Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh Uh-oh, it's all of me. I have to work it out. Wait, verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So your working, it is given to you, verse 13, by God, who is the one who is at work in you, giving you that work. So we work in obedience, we walk in obedience, because God has given us that. Another example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul says, I labored, but it wasn't really me, it was God's grace. God had given Paul the labor that he performed. I think one of the sweetest ways of putting it is in Revelation 19, 7 and 8. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Uh Uh-oh, the bride has to make herself ready. Wait. Verse 8. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Isn't that a beautiful way to put it? It was given to her to make herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. This is all the grace of God. All of it, from beginning to end, is the grace of God. So your sanctification, there is an element, there is a sense of which you walk and obey, but you never say, I walked, I obeyed, but God has given me this. I clothe myself, but God has given me to clothe myself. It is always and everywhere a work of God. You say, yes, okay, Josh, but sin still remains. And we struggle against it and are sometimes beaten by it. So what do we do then? It says that God will sanctify us. Then why am I not sanctified? It says he will sanctify us entirely. Why am I not entirely sanctified? When you're fighting sin, when you're wrestling with sin, and you come to a verse like this and you see that God will sanctify you entirely, isn't it precious? As we talked about in Sunday school, isn't it precious? I mentioned it before, but talking to some Mormons about their theology, and they told a story about how that illustrated that God makes up the difference. You try your hardest, you do your best, and then at the judgment, God will cover the difference. That's not hope-filled. That says that if you're not trying your hardest, if you're not doing a certain amount, if you're not, you haven't reached a certain level, then maybe God won't cover the difference. Or it says that, that your salvation rests in your works and God's grace in covering the distance. The scripture is clear. God's grace covers all of it. All of it. As Augustine says, when he crowns our works, 
He doesn't crown our works so much as his gifts. God has given you what you do for him. We cannot hope to obey perfectly or defeat sin finally. And so our only hope is for God to bring us to completion, to sanctify us entirely. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be sanctified entirely? Well, it means to be perfectly righteous and holy without sin. Now, I think the definition may be in the next phrase. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So wholly complete without blame at the judgment. So is this sanctified entirely? Is this glorification as we talked about in Sunday school? Does this mean that we are complete in our resurrected glorified bodies? Or does this happen before the resurrection? We have to be careful here. As you can fall into two errors. Number one, you can fall into Christian perfectionism, which was taught by John Wesley. And Wesleyanism still has remnants of that. You have uh, denominations that still have that teaching, like Church of God in Christ. I'm not sure if the one here in town, but in the States, the Church of God, they believe that you can become perfect. You can become sinless in this life before the resurrection. And the second error that you can fall into is antinomianism, which means anti-law. That is the view that since sin's defeat will only be, be accomplished at the resurrection, we should not expect to see it now. That my hope, my expectation from Scripture is that I will ultimately be set free from sin, and so I just have to, to, to just wait for that day. And until then, it doesn't matter. That's, this, that's another error. To say, I, I, nothing is, is expected of me. I, I, don't, I, I shouldn't expect to see sin defeated, to see sin, uh, 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 victory over sin and growth and holiness this side of heaven, because that is all going to be accomplished at the resurrection. So I just wait till then. And so which is it? What does Paul mean here? I think the line of distinction between sanctification now and sanctification then is not as sharp as, we, as, as these two errors make it. It's not as sharp in Paul. It seems to me that Paul is expecting the Thessalonians to grow in holiness such that when they stand before Christ, they are blameless. I think that's the, that's the feeling, that's the, the, the message that you get when you read second, uh, sorry, chapter 2, verse 19. Paul says, Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? I think Paul is saying, when you stand before the judgment seat, you are my joy and my crown of exaltation because you, are, you, you have shown yourself to be a true believer, to have grown in holiness, and so you, you, are, not, you are, are, are a picture of a faithful Christian at the judgment, and so you passed his judgment. And so that's my crown of exaltation. That's my joy. That's my hope that you will pass the judgment due to your growth in holiness. I think you see that in, verse, in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Notice, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. If Paul has only in mind here glorification, the, the, the perfection that we gain at the resurrection, then verse 12 seems odd, doesn't it? 
May you abound and increase in love for one another and for all people so that he may establish your hearts without blame. If God is going to just glorify you at your resurrected body and you'll be perfect just in his supernatural power, then why do you need to increase and abound in love for one another? I think what Paul is saying is there doesn't need to be such a sharp distinction because what God has begun in you, this may sound familiar, he will bring it to completion. And so we, are, we do wrong to look at the resurrection, to look at when Christ returns and say, that's when I will be sanctified, I'll just hang out till then. No, he has already given you his spirit, he's already begun his work in you, and he will bring it to completion. He's going to bring you along and ultimately, finally, fully fulfill it then. That's why it's so important when someone says they're a Christian, Matthew 7, that they show fruit, evidence of the Spirit's work in them. You don't say, I'm a Christian, there's no change in my life, but I know I will be changed someday. That doesn't exist. God gives you his Spirit, he gives you a new heart of flesh that beats to honor him, beats with affection for him, to grow in Christ-likeness. And so while you will never be free of sin this side of the resurrection... You will never be fully and ultimately entirely sanctified. You will be progressively sanctified. So I think what Paul's saying here is that you will increase and abound in love for one another so that when you come to stand before the throne, you're not going to be, apart from his supernatural work, sinless, not at all, against Wesleyanism. But you will have a pattern of holiness. You will be distinct from the world in that you have sacrificed for him, in that you have stood against the tide of death and corruption and sin. Why? Because he has done it in you. So in other words, when you stand before the judgment seat, yes, you will be glorified. But if, even if you weren't glorified, if you didn't have that perfect body, and you just stand as you are, having been sanctified, God will recognize his works in you. And of course, he will have sanctified you entirely by glorifying you. But I think Paul's saying that it is, a, it is all tied together. And we see this, I think, in our text in 23 and 24. Paul says, uh, may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. So in our text, sanctification is put with preservation, which seems to indicate a keeping of them until the judgment. So what is Paul doing again to repeat? I think he is saying that our entire sanctification, what is, what is promised here, has already begun. It will not ultimately be completed until resurrection day, but we can and should expect to see holiness and blamelessness flower in us now. That's why more and more when I think back to my childhood, to my young adult years in church, I'd hear the phrase over and over again, well, nobody's perfect. More and more, that's offensive to me. Because imagine if you went to a hospital and you're there because your loved one is dying. And as your loved one dies, the doctor turns to you and says, well, people die. It's not what you want from a doctor. People get sick, what can you do? No, we are enemies of death. We are enemies of sickness. We are fighting them. We never just shrug our shoulders and say, what can you do? 
No. Yes, nobody's perfect. That's true, but that shouldn't be thrown around as like an excuse. Well, no one's perfect. No, but we want to be. Why do we want to be? Because our beloved Savior is perfect. We want to be like him. We want to display him. Yes, we don't, get, we don't beat ourselves up and say, oh, I'm not perfect, and so I can't earn my way with God. No, we have, already, we have already gained access to the Father through Jesus Christ, but because we see his beauty and glory and the glory of the Father, we say, oh, that we would be holy as he is holy. And we see holiness and blamelessness flower in us. And we come to church, we use the means of grace to tend those flowers. We spray them with water. We feed them. We get our brothers and sisters, we surround ourselves with people who love Jesus, who will encourage us in that. We, we, we look through our hobbies and our practices and the ways we spend our time and say, does this feed this holiness flower? Does this feed this blamelessness flower? It doesn't? Get rid of it. Because I want to serve and worship and glorify my Savior in my life. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work and you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. So he's begun the work and he will perfect it over time until it's complete and full at the glorious resurrection or the glorious return of Jesus Christ and we are resurrected. We see this also in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, where the spirit is spoken as a down payment of our inheritance. We've been given the spirit as a down payment, as a pledge. Do you think he just lounges on the couch of your heart and be like, all right, well, I'll see you at the resurrection. No, he's working in you. Here's an illustration. Let's, maybe this will help. Imagine you are told, hey, one day you're going to be a billionaire. And there's two ways that that's going to happen, two possible ways that's going to happen. One, just one day you're given a billion dollars in one moment. Here's a billion dollars, boom, done. Or the second way is that over the years, you watch the money roll in. First a dollar, then two dollars, then four dollars, then ten dollars, then twenty. Our experience is more like the latter. We are promised to be made whole. We are promised to be entirely sanctified. We're not just waiting for that day, but we're seeing, we're seeing it happen. We're seeing it roll in. We're watching the money roll in. And as we watch the money roll in, we're remembering, I have been promised that this is going to get to a billion dollars. So when it gets to 200, when it gets to 1,000, when it gets to 10,000, when it gets to 50,000, I'm like, that's more money I've ever seen in my life. But yet, it's going to go to a billion Do you see how we can be that way as Christians? God has said he will sanctify me entirely. But yet, right now, I can see him already moving. I may not see it from Monday to Tuesday, but I'll see it from Monday 2023 to Monday 2024. I'll look back at my life and say, look at how I've grown. Look at what God has done in me. That is nothing of me. God is already doing that. So I see the Spirit working, and I I have hope and excitement and joy because he who is doing this has promised that he will ultimately bring me there. Doesn't that give you hope and perseverance? Doesn't that strengthen your faith? It's meant to. Imagine that guy who's promised to be a billionaire. As that money's rolling in, what, what kind of financial worries, what happens to them in him? You're up to $10. 
and you just got a bill for, let's say, $400. You look at that $10 and you say, just wait. Just wait. I'll have 400 and I'll have more. You see what we can do as Christians with that? It's fantastic. I look at what God is doing in me. I, the fruit of the Spirit that he's given me, I don't even hardly recognize myself. So when I am faced with another sin, like someone comes to me in church, or my wife or my brother comes to me and says, here's a sin that I've noticed in you. You don't just fall apart and say, well, I'm undone. You say, okay. That sin will die. That besetting sin will die. That sin that is causing me anguish will die. You see the confidence you have, as I mentioned in Sunday school, if you're jumping off the boat in a battle to invade and you're told this will succeed, we are going to win this battle and we're going to win the war. So you grab your rifle and you jump out. Oh, do that with your sin. Don't be pushed down and hiding in a closet and saying, I can't beat it, and there's no way, and I'm, who am I to even lift my head? I shouldn't even go to church. I shouldn't even talk to Christians. I shouldn't go to Bible study, because who am I? You are a child of the king. You have been given a sword to fight the battle. You've been given the means to defeat it. You've been given the body of Christ. Stand up, lift your head up, and run. Don't listen to the devil. He's going to say, lower your head and cry. Don't go to church, because it's only for perfect people. That's a lie. It's for people like me, and I was, I was in my 20s, and as I still am, I stagger into church having been beat down by sin, and I say, help me, Father. Help me fight. So stagger in with your brothers and sisters. Remind each other of these sweet, sweet truths. Remind each other of the sword, of the shield, of the breastplate of righteousness as the helmet, and say, we will, we must win. It has already been given us. Look at this verse. You will be sanctified fully. So instead of relaxing and killing time until that day when we are made complete, we confidently act in obedience, knowing that God has ordained our obedience to contribute to his entire sanctification of you in full assurance of faith and watch in amazement as holiness flowers. Next, he says, your spirit, your soul, and your body be preserved complete we don't have time to go into it, but there's been debates about whether or not this is a tripartite description of man, as if man has three parts, spirit, soul, and body. This has been a long debate in church history, but I'm more of the view that Scripture seems to use soul and spirit interchangeably. We handled this during Sunday school at one point. And Jesus uses body and soul in Matthew 10 and other places, so it seems that, that spirit and soul may be a reference to the same thing. So I think what Paul's doing here is he's, he's emphasizing that entirely. And sanctify you entirely so that your spirit, your soul, your body, everything, every part of you. It's like saying your mind, your brain, your head, every, your, your soul, your spirit, your, every part of you is entirely sanctified. Of course, there is disagreement. Some, some, some commentators say that this is a picture of a three-part division of man. But again, that's a, another topic that if you want to talk about it, maybe talk to me after the sermon. But moving on to verse 24. I think we're running short on time. Verse 24. We have that wonderful, full of grace connection between, one, number one, God's faithfulness, number two, God's calling, and number three, God's fulfillment of his promise and of his call. Does that sound familiar? Do you remember that in Genesis? This is throughout Scripture. 
Haven't we seen it throughout Abraham's life? Again and again and again and again and again and again, God says, I am faithful. I called you. I will do it. I am faithful. I called you. I will do it. I am over and over and over. So when we as Christians are, are, are struggling with how, what is, our, what is our way forward? What is our path against sin? What is, our, what is the way that we mature? What, this is it. This is it. On these hang everything. You are on the everlasting way in these. This is the way it's always been. You look back and you see his calling. You look forward and you see the fulfillment of his promises. And underneath are the everlasting arms. The everlasting faithful arms. You'll notice it's God, God, God. God's faithfulness, God's calling, God's fulfillment of his promises, of his call. God, God, God. God is faithful. God calls. God does what he says. We see this throughout Scripture. Just for a sake of time, let me give you a few verses. Well, let me show you. In First Thessalonians alone, we've seen this. In chapter 1, verse 4, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. He has chosen you. He has called you. Then chapter 2, verse 12, says again, So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you in His own kingdom and glory. And then in chapter 4, verse 7, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. God has chosen. God has called them. And so when, when Paul comes to say, He who is faithful who calls you, His calling will result in Him bringing it to pass. Let me give you another one, Jude. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forever. Notice, he keeps you from stumbling. He makes you stand. Blameless. This is the one. This is God who fulfills this. God who accomplishes it. He who calls is faithful. And then the passage that I opened with, First Corinthians, chapter one, seven through nine. You see all of this put together beautifully. First Corinthians one, seven through nine. So in verse 4, it says, the grace of God which is given you in Christ Jesus. And then you come to 7, it says, so that you're not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, look what Paul does. Verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you. You see what Paul's doing again? Don't listen to my commandment or my exhortation, Corinthians, and be like, here he goes again. No, Corinthians, look at what I just said. You've been called. In, in the grace of God and Jesus Christ, you've been given everything. Verse 5, you've been enriched in him, all speech and knowledge. And in verse 7, you are not lacking an ibni gift. You are given everything, and you, are you will be confirmed blameless until the end. He is faithful who has called you. Therefore, between his calling and his promise of the end, live as if you've been called and as if you believe the promise. That's the Christian life. We see it there in, first in our passage, 1 Thessalonians 
523 and 24, the, 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 the between the now may of verse 23 and he will bring it to pass. This is the Christian life between these. We pray, we expect, we obey. It's that Paul is praying and expecting and, and blessing them, saying, may God do this. Why is, he, why is he saying that when he knows in verse 24 he will do it? That's where we, we live in between those. We pray and expect and obey knowing that God will do it. Finally, let's look at Revelation. A few passages of Revelation, then we'll be done. Just as a sweet, sweet vision of the future. Revelation 15, 1 through 4. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And notice, those who had been victorious over the beast in his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. You see the, 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 what they put together there? The people who are singing this praise are the ones who have been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name. And yet they know where that comes from. They know where the victory comes from. Their praise is to him. Great and marvelous are your works. They don't go up and say, we have overcome, and so we stand in your presence having done this of our own accord and own ability. No, you have done this. Great and marvelous are your works. Righteous and true are your ways. You alone are holy. God has done in them. So essentially they're singing the song of, he has done it, he has done it. Great and marvelous is he, he has done it. Then go to chapter 14, verses 3 through 5. This is 144,000. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have, they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Look at their resume. They're blameless. They kept themselves chaste. They follow the Lamb wherever. How do they do that? These people are like the special forces of Christianity. No. It comes from these having been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. They are His. He has done it. Finally, chapter 5. Turn a few pages to the left. Chapter 5, 8, and, 8 through 10. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, and this is a glorious song, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. Why? For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Notice verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. He has made them 
He has made them. They have not made themselves. They have not sanctified themselves and finally pulled themselves up, crawled up to finally get to heaven and say, I have done it. No. They say, worthy are you because you purchased men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you made me to be a kingdom priest. He makes us. We do not make ourselves. That is the hope we have as Christians. That is the certain and sure promise. We look to the future and say, he will sanctify us entirely. And though I participate, I walk in obedience, it is nothing of me because he gives me all of it. Every gift. And he sanctifies me ultimately, completely at the end. And so when I sing, I sing of him. Let's pray. Father, we sing of you. We sing of the worthiness of the Lamb. We have nothing of ours to earn, to sanctify ourselves. If we see growth, if we see the death of sin in our lives, it is nothing in us. It is everything you have given us in Jesus Christ. And the means of grace by which you apply the gospel by your spirit. And so we stand with open mouths and open hands saying, feed us, fill us, give us, grow us, sanctify us. Father, forgive us where we turn church into just a polite social organization and not a battlefield hospital, not a training ground, not a place to fight sin, to to walk arm in arm, getting each other's back, hating evil, hating sin above all in our own hearts, determined by your grace, full of the scriptures, full of the spirit, to see victory, not just wait until that day, but to see victory now and to expect victory, if not today, then tomorrow. If not tomorrow, then the next day, but to see victory, to see progress, because you have given your spirit, you have given us everything we need for life and godliness, to become partakers of the divine nature, as Peter says. So, Father, help us to live lives of worship, to live in awe, to look at passages like this with our mouths open, amazed, astonished, not only at the grace that, that converts us, that justifies us, that regenerates us, but the grace that takes us all the way through sanctification now into ultimate and final entire sanctification then, glorification, that you who began will complete. Your good Father, You're good to us, still. We praise you and we thank you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.